0: Somebody once described snooker as chess with balls. Hello, and welcome to this week's Urgent Bite, brought to you by the Royal New Zealand College of Urgent Care. My name is Guy Melrose, and today we're talking snooker and taking a quick look at diagnosing neuroendocrine tumours in urgent care. Q-sports are popular all around the world. Traced back to the 1300s as outdoor games, not unlike croquet, these games of hitting balls through hoops were brought indoors and developed down various different paths, often dependent on region. Most people will be familiar with pool, and its many variations, with pool tables being a common presence in pubs, common rooms, and recreational areas. The game of snooker evolved out of English billiards and the Russian game of pyramid, and was created by British soldiers in India in 1875. While both use a baize covered slate and a cue to hit balls into pockets, snooker differs from pool. It's played on much bigger tables, and players accumulate points through potting balls. It is also, compared to pool, somewhat less popularized, probably because of the need for a very large table, and it being far less accessible due to difficulty. We can all pot a ball on a pool table usually while holding a beer, and so the game is quite easy to pick up. But once you've found an accessible snooker table, just reaching the cue ball can be an issue, and even potting a straight shot is extremely difficult. Despite this, snooker remains a very popular game in the UK, but it is played around the world, being especially popular in China. While the most world championships have been won by English, Scottish, Welsh and Northern Irish players, there have been world champions from Australia, the Republic of Ireland, Canada and Belgium. New Zealand has had a world finalist twice. But snooker does hold a special place in the British sporting calendar, and this is no better demonstrated by the 1985 World Snooker Final, between six-time world champion Steve Davis from England and the eventual 1985 champion from Northern Ireland, Dennis Taylor. Their best-of-35 frame final went to 17 frames each and even went down to the very last ball. The match lasted 14 hours and 50 minutes, and despite the conclusion happening beyond midnight, It was watched live by 18.5 million people. Anyway, all this is to say that I've been thinking a lot about snooker recently, as we are currently in the middle of one of the big three snooker tournaments, one of the Triple Crown. Along with the World Championships and the UK Championships, the Invitational Masters makes up the trio of most prestigious events, and it is held at the Alexandra Palace in London in January. It features the top 16 players in the world. The players play for, in addition to the title and the money, the Paul Hunter Trophy. Paul Hunter won the Masters in 2001, 2002 and 2004, and the trophy was named in his honour in 2016. Paul died in 2006. Paul Hunter was only 27 when he died known as the Beckham of the Bays, he was an exciting and charismatic player, whose flowing blonde hair did evoke more of a David Beckham vibe than Steve Davis. I remember when he died, and although I could remember cancer being the cause, I never considered exactly how he had died. So after catching up on the first round results this week, I watched the BBC's Hazel Irvine mention the Paul Hunter trophy, and this got me thinking about him. And I was interested to look into why he died, and as always, reflect on this through the urgent care lens. So the common reporting on Paul Hunter's death is that he died of stomach cancer. But to be more accurate, he died of neuroendocrine tumours. Neuroendocrine tumours arise out of neuroendocrine cells, these being cells that have both nervous and endocrine features. They can originate in the skin, testes, ovaries, pancreas, thymus, thyroid, gallbladder, lungs, or gastrointestinal system. 55% are in the GIT, but overall neuroendocrine tumours account for only 0.5% of all malignancies, and 2% of all gastrointestinal malignancies. Neuroendocrine tumours can occur anywhere along the GI tract, and treatment and prognosis will vary depending on where they occur. But in general, neuroendocrine tumours are often slow-growing and asymptomatic, so it seems that they are detected incidentally, and their increase in prevalence is associated with increased use of surveillance endoscopies. But they can be more aggressive, and patients may present with symptoms of their progression. The WHO has grades for neuroendocrine tumours, and as with most malignancies, there are many variables that determine treatment approaches and prognosis. To reflect on this from the urgent care perspective though, knowing the in-depth details of neuroendocrine tumours and how they're staged and managed is not information we need to know. I think we need to have a basic awareness of what they are, but we're not the people making the definitive diagnosis. Where we do have a role is in the person presenting yet to be diagnosed. I wanted to reflect on our role at this stage, and this is where Paul Hunter's story comes into it. I found reference to Paul's journey in an online interview with his widow. He'd been having intermittent pains in the abdomen towards the end of 2004. The pain worsened and it was his GP who referred him to hospital in 2005, suspecting appendicitis. Investigations then discovered multiple tumours in the abdomen, and they were later confirmed as neuroendocrine tumours, and he underwent chemotherapy, but sadly died in 2006, just before his 28th birthday. For rare conditions such as neuroendocrine tumours, we're never going to have them at the top of our differential list. No clinician in the real world would be able to make these diagnoses during the initial presentation in the community, but I think where we intersect with these patients can fall into two categories the acute on chronic and the chronic. Acute abdominal pain is a common presenting complaint to urgent care and I think we often refer with an undifferentiated diagnosis of acute abdomen. Appendicitis is something we can take a decent stab at and it is interesting that Paul Hunter was referred as an acute appendix. It would be interesting to know how strongly that doctor felt that appendicitis was likely, and whether it was just a best guess for an otherwise undifferentiated and slightly protracted story. Knowing that a person should see a surgeon acutely is the important part. Getting the referral diagnosis correct is a bonus point, But I would imagine that if any of you have been part of a patient's journey to a diagnosis of neuroendocrine tumours, then you will have referred based on some clinical signs and historical features that warranted review, and not because you explicitly thought that they had a neuroendocrine tumour. I should mention here that neuroendocrine tumours of the appendix are the third most common type of neuroendocrine tumour of the gut. I think the trickiest situation for urgent care, though, is the chronic abdominal pain. If it's acute on chronic, then this acute flare often shows the hand of the illness a little more, but the people with ongoing and chronic pains, our brief interaction with that patient without the luxury of follow-up can be tricky. Establishing that acute referral is not needed is reasonably easy, but navigating the next steps is difficult pathways can be helpful and referring to local referral pathways for investigations and clinic referrals is essential, but often these consultations can feel unsatisfying. Not everyone will have a serious underlying condition, but we do not want to miss one. So in urgent care the important thing is to remember to ensure that your patient understands your recommendations for what your next plan is, be it bloods or imaging and so on, and most importantly the need for follow-up. Ensuring GP follow-up is vital. Consider your red flags for chronic abdominal pain, like change in bowel habit and weight loss, etc. and refer into the outpatient system if you're able to, but otherwise GP follow-up is a must for all chronic pains. Finally, my last take-home reflection relates to carcinoid syndrome. Neuroendocrine tumours are often called carcinoids, as this is what the GI tumours were first called before they were more fully understood. Some GI neuroendocrine tumours, especially those in the midgut, can cause a constellation of symptoms related to hormone release, and this creates the carcinoid syndrome wheezing, flushing, diarrhoea, palpitations, are all possible symptoms, so in someone with chronic abdominal pains, we should pique our interest if these other symptoms are present. They can also spiral into a carcinoid crisis, but these patients are very sick. So my reflections on the neuroendocrine tumours that extinguished one of Snooker's brightest stars are that we're not likely to diagnose these in urgent care, but we might refer acute presentations as undifferentiated pain or as a possible appendicitis, thereby starting the diagnostic process. For chronic presentations, we need to consider how we use the pathways and systems available to aid in referrals and ultimately diagnosis, but all the time ensuring that follow-up is maintained back with their usual GP and recognising some symptoms of carcinoid syndrome might help us unlock this diagnosis, if we keep our wits about us, take a thorough history, and listen to our patients who present with chronic abdominal pains. I'll link in the show notes to a good paper from the World Journal of Gastrointestinal Oncology by Monjur Ahmed that's definitely worth reading. If you've never watched or played snooker, I would highly recommend it, I've had a replay of a World Championship match playing in the background as I've written this podcast. The thoughtful, quiet commentators, the hushed and respectful crowd and the intermittent clack of balls is very relaxing background to work to, but as the 1985 World Championship showed, snooker can be a thrilling and compelling spectator sport. If you have any comments, questions, corrections or suggestions, email podcast at rnzcuc.org.nz And we'll be back again next week with another podcast. Look forward to seeing you all then. But for now, thanks for listening.